We're going to look at Sufism and women's role in Sufism. In all religions, there are parts of people's practices that might be a bit more excessive or extreme, having extra practices of meditation, bigger fasting, more prayers, or praying with great fervor and ecstasy, energizing in many spiritual ways. They are characteristics of various people groups and various other faiths. And so also in Islam, we find some people who are Muslims who believe that it's necessary to do extra praying, extra meditation, but that it should be accompanied with great ecstasy and speak of knowing God. I think some of the attractiveness of these practices has attracted many Westerners. A large number of Western converts to Islam are converts actually to Sufism, to a particular part of Islam, rather than in general. Although among the younger generation, it is true that many people are attracted to just Islam or through marriage to a Muslim become Muslims. Sufism is sort of a separate group in many ways, and they are also beginning to be a part of the culture in Britain and in America and throughout Europe, not just in their homelands. Some of them are known as holy men with great magical and spiritual abilities. The focus is on the practices rather than on a person, although the vocabulary sounds extremely like religious biblical vocabulary. The teaching began to formulate in Islam during the late 8th and 9th century. And for some people, that things were organized and legalized and all the traditions came into place. There was a way to pray and a way to eat and a way to do everything. Perhaps brought a general sense of dryness, too formal, too fixed, and the heart longed for something free, spontaneous. And certainly, Sufism encourages a certain spontaneity and a great experience. It has its deep roots often in many other cultures, partially, or should I say even most deeply, in Persian or even in Hinduism. It resembles some of the spiritual practices of the Hindu holy men and also much a flavor of the Persian culture. There is a spiritual leader who leads the groups, and people are his disciples and follow. But it does have roots within the life of the prophet. As we said, you are to follow the practices of the prophet. The prophet Muhammad said, There is a polish for everything that taketh away the rust, and the polish for your heart is the invocation of God. This means the saying of the name of God many times, which is often known as thikr to recount, repeat the name of God. Sometimes you will see a person repeat it a hundred, five hundred, incessantly until perhaps he faints or passes into some sort of oblivion, remembering God. There's also verses in the Quran that seem to say that this kind of worship and this eagerness to have experiences with God is acceptable. 
repeating the traditions and the name, their skins and their hearts would shine in the celebration of God's praises. The Quran speaks of that in Surah 39. And then again in Surah 24, Allah is the source of light of the heavens and the earth, light upon light, thus set forth parables for men. And so this is an, another little sign that Sufis, that God has set his resemblance or images, and in those images or those symbols, you find God. And so it's quite uh, interesting that people like to focus on light or focus on uh, bread or water or some focus, then that focus is to reach through to God, to know God. And the other verse that's quite interesting and I find even challenging what it means to a Muslim, sort of five fifty four, that God will produce a people whom he will love and they will love him. Because there's not a lot of expressions of love and loving God. Uh, and the word for love is a different word in the Quran than the vocabulary of everyday language and doesn't necessarily portray the kind of love that we speak of in the New Testament. But here is a verse that seems to say that God is interested in some kind of personal relationship and that God would love them. So the other one that talks about nearness to God is that we are as near to God as our jugular veins. So there is within the Quran some statements about personal relationship indicating or hinting at God could be known or that we should try to know him or that our focus should be on God. The early Sufis, and many of them being in the Persian area, uh, began to appear and write and leave documents for us from sometime in the late 8th century into the 9th. And Hassan Basri is one of the early ones. Some of his statements that he said, He that knoweth God loveth him. And the wonder is not how the lost were lost, but how the saved were saved. So sometimes these statements sound like things you might say, but you have to remember that these statements are still said within the framework of believing in Islam and in Muhammad. Um, and also a lot of the Sufis and the Sufi writings are in poetry. And poetry, the meanings and the choice of words are what the poet felt. And then we, many centuries and years later, what we feel when we read them. But how and is it possible that we even know what they felt? So entering into what is really happening and really saying is not very easy. And just because the vocabulary so often sounds exactly what a Christian might say, we need to be careful that we don't interpret it from how we would, what we would have meant if we said it. And another very early one who also knew Hassan Basri is a woman called Rabia. And I want to come back to her later and share with you a woman Sufi and how that touched her life. But next is a very important one called Yazid Bistami. He gives us another look into his view of Sufism and that Sufism was to build a relationship with God, to know God, and to have some sort of union with God. 
So he said, after many weeks of meditation, I am no longer Bistami. I slip out of my skin, the lover into the beloved, and we are one. So the oneness is the disappearance of you and leaving only the oneness, which is not exactly the union with God that we speak about. And then there was Halaj, who said that he disappeared. I'm no longer Halaj. I am truth. And it was understood by the people who heard him say it that he was making himself God. And Halaj, one of the early Sufis, was killed and crucified, although later many of the writers have decided he was not a heretical as originally thought to be. But next there is a man called Ghazali who's very famous uh, among because he was a teacher of Islam and he was a theologian and in his later life he became a mystical person and because knowing all of theology and being very gifted and known for being orthodox he then became a, a very popular Sufi and he brought an acceptability to Sufism that had not existed. They were always considered a bit borderline or eccentric. But Ghazali, who had the theology to be Quranically correct, when he became a Sufi, it gave a sort of honor to Sufism and became far more respectable. Then Ibn Arabi, who lived in Spain during the time that Spain was very much a Muslim country, spoke of many things. He's he seemed to be some sort of pluralist because he said that God was in everything, but he also spoke of his heart could be a mosque or a temple and his heart could be a, a, a church, all different things. All were the same and all were equal. He gave a very modern kind of pluralistic acceptance of all sorts of faith. In the 13th century and coming into the Middle Ages, the most famous one is Rumi, who was in Turkey. He became very famous because he wrote extensively. He wrote spiritual books and novels, and he also was the founder of an order which is known as the Whirling Dervishes and are still very popular in Turkey today. Sufism is usually a group of people who decide to live together, and they form... Uh, a community or an order known as a tarika. And the tarika and its family, if it grows larger, and the community have usually their own property or their zawiya. And even many villages become a zawiya, a Sufi village on its own, especially dotted throughout North Africa. People would join, perhaps single or even married, they would go and leave their family during the initiation period. So Sufis were not celibate and as a whole. They were married people, and families were in the order, although it was perhaps just the man who had become the person who was the Sufi. And there would be leaders of the groups who planned the way the group would live and the things that they would do day by day. But there was a kind of cycle that you went through. Sometimes the cycle had to be said that you went through seven veils or seven stages. And the stages were times when you came and repented of who you were. There was a repentance stage. There was a stage of knowledge, learning things. And then there was a stage 
of disappearing when you stopped to be you and became uh, something purer or something different in this union and the final stages of knowing God. So, and during those stages, you would be repeating certain formulas depending on the group to which you joined. What was interesting is, to me is that there was not possible for women to become the leader of the mosque or to have religious roles for many, many years, although now there are some women who have positions in Islamic affairs in different countries. But generally speaking, there was no, no opening and women were not expected. Because after all, most of the time, women were unclean. And if you think of having a baby every year as some of the early women's life was, so they, it wasn't possible that they would be clean and able to pray and lead others in prayer. So the religious life of general run of Islam was not open uh, in any sense that a woman could have a particular role or part in it. But Sufism, women took part in it. Women had roles. And over the years, many women were well known to have been Sufi leaders of orders. And it gave women something that they could be a part of. Rabia was one of those women who is well known. She was born in a poor family in Iraq. And her parents shortly died. She was left an orphan and then hired out to work and be her keep by working for a farmer. But he had great difficulty keeping her working. She always wanted to pray. And in frustration, finally, he told her to leave and just go pray because he couldn't convince her to not be praying all the time. And so she went off and found herself a way to live and to be, go on praying and talking to God. She lived in a desert area out of Basra somewhere, and she began to, to pray and pray for other people. She was offered many times marriage, but preferred to remain celibate. The contract of marriage, she said, is for those who have a special existence for that, who are concerned with the affairs of the material world. But here in my existence, this has ceased to be. And since I ceased to exist and have passed out of self, my existence is in him. I am altogether his. I am the shadow of his command. Marriage contract must then, you must ask him and not me. She would often pray in the night and watching the stars. She said the eyes of men are closed and the kings have shut down their doors. But every lover is alone with his beloved. And here I am alone with thee, O God. God, the night has passed and the day has dawned. How I long to know if you have accepted my prayers or if I have been rejected. Therefore, console me, for it is thine to console this state of mine. Thou hast given me life, cared for me, and thine is the glory. If thou were to drive me from thy door, yet I wouldn't forsake thee, for the love that I bear in my heart is toward thee. And the one that often comes to my mind that I find very hard to understand how she said it without knowing God, as I would want her to know. She said, Oh, my joy, my desire, my refuge, my friend and my sustainer, my goal. Thou art the intimate 
and I long for you. Sustain me. And if it is not for thee, O my life and my friend, how should I be? I would be distraught over the spaces of the earth. How many favors you bestowed on me, how much you have given me, of gifts and grace and assistance. Thy love is my desire, and it has been revealed to the eye of my heart. <clears throat> I have none beside thee. Who dost make the desert bloom? Thou art my joy, and is firmly established within me. If thou art satisfied with me, then, O desire of my heart, my happiness has appeared. Lord, if I worship thee for fear of hell, burn me in hell. And if I worship thee with hope of paradise, exclude me from it. But if I worship thee for thine own sake, withhold not from me thine eternal beauty. Her teaching is very striking. We know that in Iraq there were Christians, and whether she has had contact with Christians, it, we do not know. The woman who translated her biography and her writings um, did not mention anything like that in the bibliography. She only seems to have translated the actual sayings and the things that Rabia wrote. We know very little about her situation, so it's difficult to know exactly what she meant in saying things that sound so personal and relational to God. Rabia taught that sin was hurtful in the highest degree to the soul, since it was the cause of separation between the soul and the beloved. The conviction of sin as a barrier between the servant and the Lord must lead to godly sorrow and contrition. She wrote of the one who can cleanse from sin and calls God the healer of souls. Weeping was characteristic of her. She thought of repentance as a gift and explained it as God turning toward her so she could turn toward him. So, and that last part is the thing I never found in the other writing of other Sufis. Of all the different Sufis that I've read, she's the only one that I have seen so clearly express uh, repentance and forgiveness and the question that it is actually sin. But again, we have to be careful that we don't read into her words. But it certainly shows that within Sufism, there's an extraordinary sense of ecstasy, of understanding, and of meaning that we don't generally see in Islam. And for that reason, I think it opens many doors for us to share the gospel with them because they have a different look or a different hunger and a thirst for God. There are many Sufi women today, and it's possible that maybe some of you will meet them at some time. They are attracted uh, to hear other things. And often people visit them because they are pregnant and want someone to pray for them. And other Muslims visit them to pray about personal things or needs or problems. They often become like a source of spiritual help or comfort to other Muslims. Many Muslims uh, are not Sufis themselves, but it seems that it, for certain areas of their life, Sufism has a certain role and a certain part. And so you'll find them throughout the Muslim world, although you will still meet other Muslims who will say, Sufism is not a part of Islam. Sufism is a heresy. And yet it seems to be a part of 
most of the Muslim world that I have visited at different times. Perhaps these things kind of overwhelm you, but it gives you some thoughts for questions to ask your friend about their view of God and their hunger for God. What are they longing for and how do they relate to this God? And again, you, they will probably ask you about it and how you pray. It's a chance to talk, I think, about prayer and about spiritual things, things that you might not normally be open to say or think that you would share with a Muslim friend. But I think there are also some dangers because we don't want to see this as some sort of knowing God when it might not be genuinely knowing the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to just hear the things and try to let them explain and tell us, but we want to also be clear in sharing our way of knowing God because experiences are a part, but experiences need to be based on facts and beliefs, and so we want to help them understand that knowing God, that we can know the God and there are certain statements and things we can say about God which sometimes is difficult. Some of my Muslim friends have said, Christians define God, but you can't. God is bigger, and yes, that's true. But we still can make statements and, and have things we can say about God. It doesn't mean we know all of him, and we never will on this earth. But we have certain statements of truth and fact from the scripture, and then experience comes from our knowledge and not without our knowledge. And so we need to be aware that the, within Sufism, perhaps mainly, they're seeking an experience, a feeling, an emotion. But we also want them to know that there are facts and things to think about which bring the emotions and bring the joy to me because I know God. And also knowing God or union with God doesn't destroy me. Quite often my Sufi friends have said it becomes the end of you. You be go away and only God is left. But I think God is creating in us to be who we truly are. We don't go away, but we become the person that God wants us to be. We're not destroyed, but we can become fully me rather than disappearing. But one other thing just to say is that knowing how they think and they love poetry do you know how to use poetry in your evangelism or parables and allegorical things? They love to have the stories of different things that Jesus told. I am the door. I am the shepherd. It's lovely to use all the I am's that John had in his gospel. And also to explaining your testimony again, how you personally can know the Lord Jesus. And also perhaps the other thing that Sufism reminds me of is loving God, expressing what it means to love God and God loving us. But, and also, again, the names of God, thinking of all his names and what they mean. We can focus on that and experience wonderful joy and blessing through his name.